and collapsed on top of Judas, who actually died also. So he actually became a great martyr in the leading of the Jewish rebellion against the Seleucid Empire. Well, that's all a rather long bypass, really, about some of the books in the Apocrypha. But um, there's good stuff there, uh, making some good points. So coming back to the wisdom of Solomon, which was uh, also, as I said, part of the Apocrypha, it was probably written in the first century BCE by a Hellenistic Jew. And he lived probably in Alexandria, so this is what the scholars are able to tell us. And the book of the wisdom of Solomon, it's actually connected with what the name in the Old Testament as the wisdom literature. Three books principally, Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes. And so the wisdom of Solomon has uh, similarities. And Solomon is not mentioned in the book. So you have to ask, why well, is it called the Wisdom of Solomon? Because in the middle of the book, including the uh, reading that we have today, um, there are words about the nature of wisdom which are very similar to the words you remember in 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon became, first became king, uh, as a young king uh, of Israel, and he prayed to God not for wealth, influence or power or might or anything like that, he prayed that he might have wisdom to govern the people wisely. And so there are reminiscences of that that you find in the book The Wisdom of Solomon and why it takes his name. And when we think about wisdom, there are different ways you can think about it. Um, there are just three in particular. If you read the book of Proverbs, uh, you'll find there a lot of um, wise pieces of advice you know, about good living. That if you want to lead a good life, here's a little maxim that you can follow and will help you on your journey. And it can be used also generically to think of human wisdom, which we accumulate, hopefully, over a lifetime, or which a whole race uh, accumulates as well, that sort of human wisdom generically understood. But most significantly is the third one, because in the wisdom of Solomon, um, the concept of wisdom is actually personified. It becomes a person, it has an existence all of its own, an existence that comes from God. And so, as we heard in that first reading, it's a spiritual emanation. But here it is, for wisdom is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of God. She stretches from one end of the earth to the other. I loved her and I saw her from my youth. So here you see is this kind of personified concept of God, Spirit. And we can dig even deeper on this because if you go back to the book of Proverbs, you'll find there, in chapter 8, a whole series of verses that actually talk about wisdom as being right there with God at the beginning. But when the earth was made, wisdom says, I was there. I helped in the creation of all that is. I was with God when God drew the foundations of the earth. 
and I delight in the human race, and I rejoice in the inhabited world. It was my delight. So when you begin to think about wisdom in that sense as an emanation, as a breath, a pure breath of God, we're thinking here more than just a, a series of axioms and bits of wise advice, aren't we? And you can ask yourself, where does that type of language appear again in the Bible? And you've got it. It appears in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word came to dwell among us, and we beheld the glory, full of grace and truth. It took me a bit of a while, because I hadn't made this connection before, over many years, um, thinking about that, and I couldn't see when I was them, is this a kind of a, a fourth part of the deity? But obviously not, because wisdom was being talked about before Jesus becomes incarnate. And so I came to see, and the light bulb went on, that wisdom, as we find it in the Old Testament, actually morphs into the incarnated word, the Logos. And so it's really a, a pre-runner, a forerunner in people's thinking in pre-New Testament times, in pre-Christian times, of this essential breath of God which is there and which enlightens our life and we need to be able to breathe of it deeply so that the wisdom is not just reading a few things in a book it's not a good idea it's actually something that shapes and fills the whole of our life so that our lives become changed <clears throat> by the in-breathing of wisdom by the in-breathing of the spirit of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And so that brings us, of course, to the, uh, the, the Gospel today, where Jesus has become widely known. It's chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, so there's been a lot of narrative about Jesus' teachings and his healings and his miracles. And the disciples have been going with him all this time. And now he puts to them the question, who do people say that I am. And they speculated, well, maybe John the Baptist, um, some suggested, or uh, perhaps uh, Elijah, or maybe one of the prophets. But Jesus said the crucial question, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter, as you know, who said that you are the Messiah, uh, the anointed one, the chosen one, the son of the living God. And I always find a parallel where that same question is put to the disciples in John chapter 6. And Peter said that you are the son of the living God and we have come to know and believe that you are the one who is to come. So Peter made that response in Mark's Gospel and then a rather strange sort of thing happens after that. Jesus said, okay, but don't come and tell anybody. He thought, well, what? I mean, this is the whole thing for people to come to know Jesus and uh, so that they themselves can become disciples of the living God. But Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And the scholars call this, uh, this 
dynamic, the messianic secret, keep secret about the Messiah. Now why on earth would Jesus want to keep his Messiahship secret? Isn't that the whole part of his purpose that people may know that? And the reason is because it can have a, a very superficial response. Like when he heals somebody, oh, it must be the Messiah, we'll come and get some healing for all our, you know, all our elements that we've got. Not touching the depth of who Jesus actually was. Or the, you know, when we read of the temptations of Jesus, the devil you know, saying to Jesus, jump off the temple and God will save you, or turn you know, the stone red. Uh, and it will be a miracle, or I can give you, you know, all the power of the, of the world, it will all be yours. And temptations which Jesus rejected because it was really just a bunch of cheap tricks. And you know, he hadn't come to do cheap tricks, and he had actually come to reveal the power of the living God. So the Messianic secret was really to make sure that people were focusing on the real centre of who the person of Jesus was, coming to know God, breathing in the wisdom, breathing in the Spirit. As some of you will know the writings of a Franciscan priest in America, Richard Raw, R-O-H-R. He's, um, he's globally known and writes uh, books of devotion and insights. And one of his books that I was looking at recently is called Falling Upward, interesting title. And in the book he talks about the two journeys in life. So the first journey is a journey which we all start off in. You know, we go to school, we get educated, we're on about getting a job, and maybe we're raising a family, uh, we're beginning to establish ourselves, find a position, perhaps uh, becoming but powerful, powerful power and affluence, influence and affluence, that sort of thing. It's a very well known uh, pattern, which is pretty generic in the way we go about life. But the second journey, which Richard Raw writes about, is the journey of knowing that there is actually more to it than just those superficial things. That the second journey is when we come to inhale. Uh, the wisdom and hail of the Spirit, we begin to see that life is essentially about things like truth and justice and compassion and loving God and loving others. And he says, points out, that these are not sequential things. You know, you don't do the first journey, first part of your life, and then you switch to the second. Uh, the second, actually, if you're on the case, informs the first. So that as we go about that first journey in life, we allow it to be illuminated, shaped, changed by the wisdom of the second journey, that higher wisdom which we come from God. So important that we actually discover that. And as the first reading said today, I discovered it as a young man and I followed it, says the writer. And Jackie and I have a friend who retired now, but for many years she was a vocational counsellor. And she said one of the things she often used to find was that people would come to her in their 50s. And they'd had a very successful life, you know, they'd been brilliant scholars, they latched into 
good jobs, they've risen up hierarchies, they've got huge salaries and influence. But now at 50, they were beginning to think, what really was that all about? Because there's something here that I'm missing in the way I'm living my life. And this really is about the journey, as you see. But there's nothing wrong in the first journey. But the first journey can be so much more significant if we allow, as I said, to be shaped by the insights of the second. And I think the saddest thing, as our friend used to find in her counselling, was that people could come to the middle of their life and feel that they hadn't found the things which were ultimately important. And hopefully you know, she was able to help them set on uh, that second journey in the years they had left and find out that there were bigger things than what they had been on about, important as though those had been. So I think that's really what the Gospel is about today, what wisdom is about today, allowing our life to be shaped by the second journey. And it's not all a walk in the park. Uh, there is a cost in discipleship. And I'll just conclude on that with um, the words, including words from the Gospel today, where Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit their own soul? In Jesus' name, Amen.